Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Sean's Wildlife. We're racking them up now. I have a very special guest with me for today's episode and her name is Laura Hyam. And I met Laura um, about a year, maybe 18 months ago, um, because the forum that she uh, runs on Facebook called the Veterinary Sustainability Forum um, was something that I was really interested in. And Laura is a vet herself, like me, but she's also founder and director of an organization called Vet Sustain. So Laura, thanks so much for coming on and uh, and agreeing to have a chat on the podcast. No, thanks to you, Sean. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here because I listen to your podcast on my daily dog walk. So this is a real pleasure to, to be a guest. So thanks for inviting me. Ah, great. Thanks. I did, I did value your uh, very early feedback. You were one of the early adopters of Sean's Wildlife Podcast. <laughs> Pleased to hear it. There has been a real a real asset to my day. So thanks, Sean. Some great guests. No worries. I'm glad <laughs> someone's enjoying it. I have no idea, really. But um, yeah. So, Laura, you're um, you're a vet up north in Sheffield, isn't that right? That's right. That's right. I've got a um, a slightly strange career history though I suppose um so worth touching on that perhaps to start with because yeah. you know people say you're you know are you a vet and, and yes I am but a bit like you I've diversified in the past few years and so I'm no longer in practice but um but yeah I started off in practice for several years in the UK and New Zealand before deciding I wanted to take a role that was much broader really looking at um health and welfare of animals in the broadest sense um and the more sort of societal roles of, of vets um and uh and more recently the sort of role of vets in sustainability and how we can act as agents of change and so um after leaving practice i went to join um, an international charity called spana the society for protection of animals abroad so worked largely in africa and the middle east um with uh, working equids primarily so yeah. for several years um got a really good grasp of the broader roles of, of veterinary professionals in society and particularly at the intersect with international development which was a fantastic foundation for the things I've done um, since then. Um, so since leaving Spano I joined the um, the Food Animal Initiative which is a sustainable agriculture research and consultancy business based on the banks of the River Thames just outside Oxford where we run an organic um, and more recently regenerative um, mixed farming enterprise and I'm um, one of the one of the team there although I'm based up in Sheffield working from home like many people are at the moment um, yeah. and uh, and I currently um, sort of run our uh, antimicrobial resistance program looking at how we can reduce antibiotic use in, in livestock through a variety of, of approaches with some of the biggest uh, feed food companies across the world so some of the big supermarkets and the big food service um, companies we advise them on their uh, standards and policies around sustainable agriculture including animal welfare environmental stewardship and um, in my case as a vet it's primarily around medicine usage and animal welfare so yeah a yeah. really really interesting role interesting and broad i liked i looked up um vets the same website today um just to familiarize myself again and i really liked the description it said a team of volunteers dedicating their time to championing the health of humans animals and ecosystems music to my ears <laughs> that's it exactly the whole one health approach which um yeah i feel very very passionately about yeah. since joining um fai it's given me a very broad view of, of how we can work vets can work as part of a multidisciplinary team and how we can contribute to sustainability and as FAI sort of defines it we, we define it by what we call the three E's so ethics environment and economics playing all playing a very equal role in in everything we do around food production so that's been a really amazing education for me and then in the past 12 months as you say we have come together um, some people from FAI and uh, also from across the veterinary profession um, including some of the the past BVA presidents, um, a number of entrepreneurs and business people um, and business mentors and coaches, um, all with different backgrounds, but all with a real passion for sustainability and all with um, a, a very acute awareness that, that vets and veterinary professionals hold a very special role in society, I think, by yeah. um, by being multidisciplinary scientists. We, we're trained in all, in all all manner of different sort of sciences and clinical um disciplines but we also obviously 
on a day-to-day -day basis in practice at least interact with the public and we're very highly trusted by the public of, of, of all the professions so we hold quite a special role there and, and we felt that we can advocate strongly for sustainability from from that position yeah yeah no i've seen the group go from strength to strength it's really um brilliant and a lot of the resources and and uh, things you put out um are super useful for people but where did the um where did the idea come from and um, how long ago did you set up vet sustain yeah it's been in the pipeline for so many years but not not sort of um not sort of brought together as a concept for a long time so I guess I've been mulling this over with colleagues um for literally years and years and it sounds like a real cliche but when I had a daughter I had my daughter Martha two years ago and um and actually that was a massive turning point just suddenly seeing not just my own future stretching ahead but hers as well you suddenly realize that we've just got so much work to do and it's very very scary and if we're to yeah. set um set set our kids up and the future generations up in a in a world that is you know as you know biologically diverse as uh, we've got a stable climate that we've got um sustainable livelihoods on offer we've got strong communities all of those things um we we just desperately need to start work and you know take collective action yesterday ideally if not 10 20 years ago but really got to get moving on this and it was a really sort of that, that maternity leave I, it, it definitely um shaped everything that I've done since then including setting up that sustain and, and she's a real driver of, of the work for me very personally um, yeah. but yeah I have been mulling it over before then but just didn't quite know how to bring it together and, and somebody just said to me just get on with it just just get on with it <laughs> and look what it was was it maybe, you know, obviously it's no walk in the park having a baby, but was it maybe just getting out of the like um, normal headspace of daily grind, work, work, work and yeah. having that that time really to think it over and kind of um, kind of see the bigger picture? Was that it? That, totally. That as well, that is, as well as the whole, you know, climate uh, an eco crisis and sort of yeah. anxiety alongside that I think definitely that time that space um to to sit back a little bit through the through the sleep deprivation of course and I made yeah. a number of slightly <laughs> rash decisions during my maternity leave including taking on a PhD which I started a year a year ago uh, but I don't regret oh, wow. that for a minute either but there was, <laughs> it does give you that time a bit of space away from work to think actually what do I want for my own career what what can I do with my own position and my own sphere of influence um yeah to to drive some changes that i felt was so so necessary um and as soon as of course you start talking to people like yourself you know like simon Doherty at the bva like ruth layton who's been a long-term mentor of mine and a, a number of others on on the what is now the the better sustain board you suddenly realize there's obviously a huge appetite for it but somebody just needs to push that ball and get it rolling and um and you know things will develop very quickly and i've been inundated by offers of, of help which has been fantastic and, and much yeah. needed yeah yeah I think that's that's an interesting point actually because um I found that doing this podcast and starting to talk to obviously lots of people involved in wildlife conservation but then talking to the veterinary community I kind of didn't realize and it's a stupid um kind of omission to kind of think oh that's not the case but kind of didn't realize actually as vets we all have um a lot in common in terms of obviously being interested in nature and wildlife and animals and things but like there's such an appetite and such a, a passion for kind of um environmental issues and kind of wider sustainability within the veterinary community isn't there did you did that surprise yeah. you yeah the, the, there absolutely is i think um there, the, there is that huge um swell of support that we've seen uh, but there's also a swell of recognition of what we're doing within our day-to-day -day operations that in some cases leave a bit to be desired and I think we, we all mm -hmm. have that no matter what sector we work in we all suddenly have to sort of take a look in the mirror before we do anything and start trying to advocate for change you have to look in the mirror and think what am I doing professionally in my household in my community amongst my family and friends and you've got to sort of take a look at that almost first and I think some vets are starting to do that much more now and starting to think about the medicines that they're using and the impact of those on the environment their support of certain um, industries and sectors and the way in which that um, industry has, has, has been shaped over the recent decades and whether we need to take a look at it again and rethink it you know um, vets are interesting in that we've got our own obviously our own operations 
operations, usually at clinic level, um, as practicing vets. And then obviously there's vets in industry and government in NGOs um, and in academia as well. So all of those hold their own challenges around sustainability. But we also are in a unique position that we influence multiple sectors in society, including um, agriculture, aquaculture, pet ownership and the pet industry, the equine industry, and then the whole wildlife and conservation sector as well. And so with those feelers out into those sectors, we've got a very, very um, broad sphere of influence. But yeah, before we get started, we have to have to kind of look in the mirror and think, where do we sit? Are we doing things okay? Can we do things better? And that's been quite interesting that there's been a real swell of recognition that, that perhaps we, we can start to um, you know, scrutinize what we're doing a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone needs to kind of look at the status quo and, and kind of analyze, you know, could it be done better? What can we do uh, better? Um, sure. This is obviously a really, really back to basics for any listeners who get bombarded sometimes with the word sustainability. You know, it's kind of a buzzword right now, isn't it? It's uh, everyone asking us to be more sustainable. But just for anyone that is listening, that's maybe like a bit confused about it. What would be your summary, Laura, on you know, what is sustainability and what does it mean for people in their day-to-day lives? Yeah, it's a really good question. There's so many definitions. So I could talk about this for quite a long time, actually. There's so many of them. <laughs> However, I'll, I'll keep you contact. A really, nice, <laughs> yeah, a really nice definition from the University of Newcastle is enough for all forever, which is really simple and um, you can get behind that. it. And yeah, it includes everything from sort of uh, you know, taking care of resources, um, equitable distribution of those resources, and then obviously the timescale. Um, for, for, from FAI's point of view, where I work, we, we look at things from through the three E's lens. So looking at ethics, environment and economics and everything we do have to consider in depth those three issues. So we basically do a three E's scope in all of our work before we get started on something to make sure we've, we've ta- we're tackling and addressing all of the um, elements of, of those three E's. But actually, in recent years and in, in recent months, particularly, there's been a bit of an abandonment in a way of the sustainability concept in that it implies its very word implies that the status quo and keeping things as they are for a long time and, and actually there's a new recognition that we need to actually be regenerating the planet and that is now yeah. coming into a lot of FAI's work into my own um, thoughts around sustainability and of course you'll you'll know yourself very much so Sean that regenerative agriculture is is not only a buzzword but it's a real movement that's starting to take hold and that's very exciting movement yeah yeah loving the attention it's getting now and seeing people adopting regenerative practices is really exciting we'll come on to that in a sec for sure yeah so you've talked about kind of vets being very well placed, obviously, to talk about sustainability, whether it comes to kind of climate, environment, wildlife and biodiversity and things like that. Um, what do you think the vet profession's role is or like how is it changing in terms of food specifically, food sustainability and kind of supply chains and things like that? Yeah, there's, there's been, um, I guess, a broad recognition from from, you know, UN level, FAO level, I guess, that vets are fundamental stakeholders in the world's food system. And that's always been acknowledged, I guess, at those at that, at that level. Um, I think Vet Sustain was, was sort of um, grew up around the idea that, yes, we do a lot and we're not necessarily recognised as agents of sustainability. So that could potentially change and it could mean that vets get more of a, a seat at the table in, in dialogue at you know higher level, political level, government level yeah. um, around yeah, bringing together the One Health concept, which for many of your listen, listeners, I'm not sure if you'll understand the One Health concept, but it really is the um, acknowledgement that, um, that the environment, people and animals are all inextricably linked. So you can't affect one without affecting the other. And, and vets have got a really strong understanding and appreciation of, of We're that. part of that ecosystem, that food web, aren't we ourselves? Absolutely, yeah. And the medics as well are starting to really get to grips with the One Health concept as well. And obviously, we can't get through a podcast without talking about corona, but that's... You know, well, COVID, I was going to say... Yeah, epitomizing yeah. the health concept. So, I mean, let's talk about that now, like the, the link potentially between coronavirus uh, coming from wildlife, uh, wildlife reservoirs. Um, yeah. when, when we start to screw with ecosystems and when we start to, um, I guess, take advantage of wildlife species as a, as a resource, um, unfortunately, there can be negative consequences in terms of disease, can't there? We've seen that multiple times over and over again. This is just the latest example of that. 
That's right, exactly. A very, very cute and sharp example of, of how it can happen. And yeah, absolutely uh, not wanting to particularly focus on the, the root cause of this particular pandemic, because it's one of, of many that have caused, um, you know, not similar necessarily, but, but but very devastating, certainly local or regional impact. But um, looking at what happened in um, in China, the sort of bringing together of multiple different species into a small space together with people, um, it just was an absolute recipe for the emergence of novel species, novel um, strains of, of viruses that can then start to jump species, the species gaps from one to another. And in this case, um, likely to be from from a bat and including other wildlife species too and so it was just one example of, of many that we've seen across the world in you know across the decades where we have yeah like you say encroached upon habitats or dismantled um, ecosystems in some way um, that has resulted in novel strains appearing and, and it having a direct impact on on human health and well-being and um, this is a particularly particularly mad time and it's been a um, a, a globally devastating disease, um, but absolutely need to learn lessons from this one, um, and and hopefully we can draw some silver linings from what has been an, an absolutely devastating year for so many people yeah. and, and obviously animals too. Yeah, I was just going to ask my next question. Do you think there are silver linings? Do you think that maybe it's um, making us look harder at like where we're getting our food from or how far we're we're importing it from, things like that? Yeah, it, halfway through the the crisis, halfway through lockdown, I, I felt quite optimistic. Um, I must say that's changed a little bit since since then. Um, mm. I wrote an article about this um, on the poultry site, actually, strangely, but at the time I felt quite optimistic. Um, locally and regionally, I think we've seen some real shifts, some fantastic shifts towards diversifying our sourcing of food um, and I'm sure you've talked about this before as well on your podcast that we're, we're seeing a lot more interest in local growing your own um, and yeah. different producers um, closer to home and um, which has been brilliant and um, we saw obviously cataclysmic um, effects on global supply chains with impacts on, on livestock as well that, that, that makes for pretty grim reading but um, some of those global big supply chains that rely on just-in-time logistics networks so there's no slack in the system for for delays etc and of course when workers and um, shipments are delayed you then get impact on those supply chains and so early on when we saw some of those shelves laying bare that was as a result of um, you know large supply chains not being able to pivot as quickly as some of the more local and regional supply chains and of course they did um, very quickly actually quite remarkably quickly did, did manage to um, adjust for the, the change in demand and um, a drop off obviously in the hospitality sector and a, a driving demand towards um, cooking at home and, and I think the supermarkets by and large did a really good job in the end but it did reveal it did reveal um, sort of issues in global supply chains and did highlight to me particularly and some of my colleagues that diversifying our supply chains actually is a really really good idea so diversifying what goes in your um, weekly food basket in terms of where it comes from who supplies it what it is in the first place yeah. makes us a much more resilient society actually and so I think we've seen a lot of behavior change around where we're getting our daily groceries from yeah absolutely yeah hopefully more will start uh, growing their own i'm a big a big fan of that big advocate I know. Of that. I'm, I'm i'm very jealous of all your allotment shots and your lovely eggs so yeah i know you're a big advocate of this sean yeah yeah um do you think that covid maybe uh will affect our interactions with wildlife and ecosystems do you think people are, are sitting up and taking notice because of this I think there's been some great changes um, in, in China, for example, there's been some 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 great um, changes in legislation to sort of um, prevent some of these um, issues in the future, potentially not strong enough, if you like, and not wide enough in, in their scope um, to sort of rule out wildlife trade per se um, I think there's a there's a big there's a lot of debate as well about the role of wet markets they, these are really fundamental markets for local food security in so many parts of the world so I, I don't think many people would wish to see them banned completely um, yeah. local food markets but um, wet markets particularly but there is just such a desperate need to make sure that 
the animals that any animals used in those markets are treated humanely um, and all the rest of that so and, and sourced carefully etc so I think there's there's huge changes to be made but of course we need to really really knuckle down on on the wildlife trade generally um, and and more broadly Sean around around again back to sort of tending towards the regenerative agriculture discussion but just broadly around how we're producing our food even the food that goes into our supermarkets because there are you know hidden hidden pandemics there in terms of the way in which we feed our animals and the use of yeah. soybean production and how we're actually you know in our very sanitized world of buying packaged packaged meat off the shelf you know some of that will be um will come from supply chains that are using soy that either aren't that it either isn't traceable or is coming from you know, from south america or somewhere right exactly exactly where there's yeah. where it's where it's a cause um or of, of deforestation so there's, there's a lot on the surface there as well as the stuff that we see in the headlines around wet markets in other countries we've got to really take a look at what we're doing here as well what we're right? doing at home yeah exactly yeah, absolutely Exactly. Um, so hot topic, regenerative agriculture. It's something that obviously um, we're hearing more and more. And speaking of buzzwords, I think um, there, there can be a tendency sometimes to call anything regenerative agriculture. I was listening <laughs> to, um, I don't know if you've listened to any of the Farm Ed podcasts. Yes, uh, I have, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and uh, George Mombio was on one talking to young farmers um, about the the uh, projects they're they're doing there, um, and he was saying it's like so overused now. It's like um, regenerative agriculture, formerly known as plain old agriculture, as in <laughs> jumping aboard the the regenerative bandwagon when actually maybe it's not actually regenerative. Mm. So Laura, what the the million dollar question then? What is regenerative agriculture? Yeah, absolutely. There's a variety of sort of emerging definitions and none that I've seen that have been kind of adopted really broadly. But for me, it's agriculture that aims to reboot the functionality of an ecosystem. So that's that's really super broad. And, and there's so much within that to sort of unpack. Um, I think generally speaking, it's a very different mindset of, of, in terms of agriculture. A lot of what we do currently, whether you're a conventional dairy farmer or an organic beef farmer or whatever you've got generally a standard to um to sort of that, that guides your agricultural practices and policies and it's a kind of recipe for how you how you do that and if you if you tick all the boxes you get the organic stamp or whatever it's a very input orientated um way of farming and and has worked to a degree and certainly in the organic side of things it it really has helped to um support biodiversity and all the rest that regenerative really starts to look again more broadly and starts to think we, we can't just sustain the status quo. We have to actually be regenerating ecosystems on our farm um, and, and on landscape scale as well. So looking at multiple farms together and how they can um, reboot the functionality of the ecosystem at that scale. It's, yeah. um, it's very much a mindset and it's a, an, a very much an outcomes orientated form of agriculture where it looks at looks very holistically um at the ecology so obviously including the wildlife and and as well as the plant species and the woodlands on site it certainly looks at the soil and that's where a lot of people will start from it looks at, at the ecology of the soil diversity yeah. of the soil the organic matter etc um it looks at livestock as well which is often considered an integral part of regenerative agriculture which is interesting because um obviously there's a real trend towards plant-based diets and certainly interest in plant-based diets at the moment but there's an argument that that livestock are um, a fundamental part of regenerative agriculture in terms of again building soil organic matter and, and fertility um, yeah. and then of course it looks at the people element so also ensures the people on the farm and the communities um, are, are vibrant and thriving um, and they're meeting their needs um, from the land as well as as well as the sort of ecosystem itself so a very different way of looking looking at agriculture and food production yeah and it looks quite a lot as well at kind of carbon emissions versus carbon sequestration into the soil and land doesn't it that's it exactly and and if if regenerative agriculture is done done right and as you say i think quite a lot of companies um and farmers are jumping on the jumping on the bandwagon perhaps without understanding um the real nuances around this but um but yeah if it's done if it's done right it really does re reboot every element of the of the ecosystem including humans plants and animals um, and it will also drive 
carbon sequestration, reduce emissions, improve animal welfare, improve human well-being um, and all the rest. So it, it's very, very holistic. And if done right, it, it should be a fantastic solution, I guess, to so many of our issues. It's, it's, it's one of those things. Is it a silver bullet? Um, it, it's it's going to require a massive shift and, and a big, big shift at global scale, I think. Um, and of course, it's not going to be adopted overnight. It'll be a, a stepwise process. But I think it yeah. has a lot of a lot of um, potential to to solve solve and at least address a, a number of our societal issues that we're facing at the moment. Yeah, that's a, a, the next question I was going to ask you is where is this drive coming from? Is it kind of self um, self managed? Because I I've, was talking to farmer I know who I interviewed on the podcast previously, um, Jeff over in the Netherlands, and he was saying most of the young farmers or new farmers that he knows going into agriculture now are going in very much with their regenerative hat on. Um, but are there any systems in place to try and get, you know, um, older generation farmers or established farmers to move in that direction? Is the government doing anything in that in that respect in terms of, uh, or are they kind of behind the times? Yeah, that's a good question. I think you're right. I think a lot of the new entrants into farming and um, and the younger generation are definitely embracing regenerative. I've, I've spoken to a number of farmers um, that, that are a bit older, I guess, and are quite well established and are looking to transition um, at our farm in Oxford. We've been running that farm for over 20 years now as an organic um, organic mixed farm. It was a, a conventional dairy um, set up and is, you know, was an organic farm for many years. And now we're starting to look at regenerative practices and uh, in a sort of wholesale sort of a way. Um, so it can, it, you can get that change on established, um, on established mixed farms. Um, so I think it's, it's a variety, but it is coming from farmers. It's coming from farmers, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, and what we'd like to do at Vet Sustain is to get vets very much in, in, in depth into this conversation so that we can advise from our position, um, I guess as 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 individuals that are, that are central in communities and have a networks of, of multiple farmers per vet and potentially hundreds of farmers per veterinary practice, so that again that sphere of influence is really broad. And so I'm hoping to get vets very much in into this debate and into this discussion and and tooled up really to advise farmers on how to to go about transitioning as well. Um, yeah. Under your question on government, I think it's not there yet, to my understanding. Um, I do think that there's some um, some interest coming in, certainly on outcomes-based approaches, which we're seeing in the new agriculture bill, um, yeah. which, which is promising. Um, there are some concerns, of course, around around the new uh, legislation about our food system. But um, one of the positive things is is this concept of rewarding farmers for public goods, which could sit quite nicely alongside the regenerative movement and uh rewilding hopefully as well right yeah yeah exactly yeah you, you saw you saw my big announcement last week i'm sure did you agri wild yeah. yes i yeah. did very exciting very exciting indeed and actually I, yeah. I will be picking your brains a lot over that <laughs> in Me the coming too. months i'd love to be involved in any way or just for, certainly to follow your progress sean it's such a that's such Brilliant. a great project yeah fantastic. Brilliant. yeah we'll, t- we'll talk more again about it but um Going back to, uh, you know, what you said about um, meat and plant-based diets and, and things like that, I think this is, to me, one of the fundamental things about regenerative agriculture is that it's almost um, modeling or mimicking, you know, a circular system, a natural ecosystem that does rely on life and death and plants and animals and, um, you know, feeding upon different things, feeding upon uh, lots of um, other things. Um, and I think, to, to put it crudely, I suppose, you know, we are an omnivorous species. Meat it has historically been a big part of our diet, but we're seeing such a big divide now in, you know, even amongst environmentalists about, you know, um, very simplistic messaging on meat is bad and plant-based is good, but it's not that simple, is it? No, again, this is such a massive topic that we could talk about for ages. Ab- yeah, absolutely not. It's it's really not that simple. Um, but I almost think we start having to, um, we start ha- we are going to have to start at some point breaking it down into fairly relatively simple messaging. And, and those that have been most successful um, in driving their own campaigns are those that that get those that get those headlines um, around yeah. what is good and what is bad. And so those of us that perhaps are, are more moderate in our views perhaps have to start thinking about how we simplify this down but it's such a such a massive topic um so for me um 
I think a shift towards plant-based is not a bad thing, um, but I do think plant-rich is, is a better term. Um, and the flexitarian movement is, is perhaps one of the most promising in terms of reducing our consumption of meat and dairy um, in a more sustainable and acceptable way to, to communities yeah. and cultures across the world. There's, there's no doubt, and you know, this, is, this is not a surprise to anybody, that there are some cultures that absolutely depend on it and in a way need to increase their um, meat and dairy intake to, in order to fulfil nutritional and educational um, and health needs and particular groups within those communities, particularly um, in the global south. Um, sort of, I'm thinking of you know children and um, women in pregnancy, particularly that yeah. that we've seen huge benefits of increasing um, animal source food intake. Um, and there's lots of research around that. So th those those sort of those arguments aside, in 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 our country and in other western nations there is for sure a strong rationale for reducing significantly reducing our protein um intake so not only yeah. our animal protein but generally our protein intake full stop because we're over consuming it which um ultimately um results in yeah overuse of resources and emission of uh, emissions in in sort of nitrogen and a whole range of other harmful um Unhealth. yeah yeah unhealthy and yeah. harmful yeah metabolites so i think there's there's that in itself and then in terms of animal source foods i think we are over consuming it on average and a drastic reduction for, for many of us would really help quite frankly um but in order again to make this really palatable excuse the pun for many i think it's a case of of, of, of just making sure it's it's sensible um that it's varied and it's coming from the best possible source um that we can get it from um notwithstanding the the challenges around um food security for some households and, and food poverty that obviously exist in this country so yeah we don't you know don't want to turn this into a very privileged conversation about only eating regenerative and organic and um, rare, rare breeds meat blah, blah, blah. exactly yeah. it's not realistic for many many people in this country and so um our work at fai and and for the last six years my work has, has been really around trying to raise the baseline you know trying to raise that legislative minimum or i guess red tractor minimum into something that is considering ethics animal welfare and the environment um more, more substantially um but really if we're looking at you know the problems that we're facing at the moment we we need to be shifting as quickly as we can to less but better and that's the ultimate message here is less but better um and i believe that both of those um are quite synergistic concepts yeah. in that if we if we if we eat less or and therefore if we're producing less then the the stuff that we will be producing will 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 be coming from a better source um and we'll have more um more options and ways in which to produce that more more sustainably yeah and higher welfare uh meat as well right exactly, exactly. yeah i mean i'm uh, yeah i'm a big believer in kind of you know less meat but better meat um and i think that's one of the things with the allotment you know having eggs is like there's a, a source of protein which is uh, pretty good comes from some happy birds um and re has replaced a lot of meat in my diet that i would have just automatically ate yeah you know? Yeah, sort of seeing, seeing it as a treat, isn't it? It's, it's and it isn't yeah. traditionally, you know, animal products are not seen as a treat. They're absolutely part of our staple um, diet, three meals a day for a lot of people. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and and it, you know, yeah. I, I come from Ireland where you know the cuisine is pretty basic, Laura. I'm going to have to say, <laughs> growing up, it was you know boiled spuds and boiled vegetables and so whatever meat was on the menu that day. But it was almost like you know, if you didn't have meat in a meal, then it wasn't a proper meal. Yeah, yeah, likewise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was brought up yeah. just outside Sheffield, um, and my parents, um, yeah, grew up really in, in inner city Sheffield on council estates, but independently. And when they got married, decided that they wanted to both, um, both wanted to to set up a small holding, and so bought a small plot of land outside Sheffield. Um, ah. And um, that's where my passion came from for sure. We had we had goats, we had chickens, we had pigs, we had the odd. odd sort of sheep wean lamb to to reach yeah. the race um and dogs and cats obviously and it was just a fab um place to to yeah to see where food food really came from so um it sounds very twee but i was kind of milking milking a goat every morning before school i mean that sounds like <laughs> brilliant out of the uh i don't know i don't know what um decade, the sound of yeah. music or something yeah. <laughs> exactly but uh, very much understood where it was coming from and those animals were you know had, had a great life and so that that really um 
yeah, that really set me up for for what I've done subsequently. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, for, for our family certainly, yeah, meat and two veg were, were staples, and um, yeah, meat was very much part of most meals. I'd say, although all of us across our family, I'd say, have, have changed have changed now to be primarily, you know, a lot of a lot of veg basically, and some yeah. carefully chosen animal products. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I heard a, a quote, I can't remember where it was recently, um, but talking about kind of meat being a treat and, you know, we do eat too much of it and it does have an environmental impact. But someone said, um, nobody needs a triple quarter pounder ever in their lives. Yeah, so true. And it's so true, isn't it? Like you don't need that amount of meat in a, in a single meal, let alone three meals a day. No. And it's got those cultural associations with yeah, masculinity and all of that around it. So yeah. it's not just in the taste of it, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of cultural um yeah, concepts around it as well. Um but yeah, we need to just get rid of that and just start thinking thinking much more carefully about what, what goes on our plate. Yeah, yeah. And to to um flip it around then from kind of, you know, meat which does have a very bad rep and there's a lot of misconception and myth about the, the true true impact of meat. I think it's how it's produced um, is is really the important factor rather than meat itself. But flipping it around to the kind of um, vegan plant-based diets options, some plant-based diets and dietary habits that people have can be just as harmful to the environment, can't they? Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's um can be can be true um i think by and large because we've got um if, if you're looking at plant-based you you know in terms of land use if you're looking at just that metric which we should should never do but if we did um we're looking at purely then producing um, human edible crops and not crops that would then go into livestock first which is yeah um which is you know arguably wasteful some might say um although i wouldn't necessarily agree with that myself but it's it, it can be considered a you know it's obviously a less efficient way of, of producing crops um yeah. and Consuming it, so um, there is that, and uh, you know, there's a quite a lot. There's a lot of evidence to say that if everybody went um, largely plant-based, we would be in, a, in a, we'd have a much more um, a sustainable future in terms of in terms of food and all of, and, and everything else connected to it. Um, but yeah, absolutely. When it comes to um, shifting to a plant-based diet, we just have to make sure that we're not substituting um, for meat um harmful alternatives i guess and and thinking particularly about very um carbohydrate loaded diets fat, fat loaded diets um and, and all the rest so we, we do have to be quite careful in terms of the substitution effect and, and what you know what we do um what we substitute meat for and, and making sure that's not ultimately actually um worse and can't fit into a, a regenerative form of agriculture um, yeah so then we've got the the, the whole lab lab based meat debate and and a lot of quite interesting um interesting developments in that side of things but i think time will tell whether that becomes a major part of our food future yeah it seems it seems a little way off just now doesn't it, does, it? Doesn't it? yeah it does yeah yeah so what about obviously everyone thinks of a vet and they think that we're you know in a little clinic down the road fixing dogs and, and cats <laughs> what about <laughs> um pet ownership what are the kind of, would they talk about the ecological paw print of keeping pets? And I think it's important, you know, that we do acknowledge that, you know, pets are very much a kind of a, a Western world luxury item in a way. Um, and they do have an impact on the environment, don't they? Absolutely. And, and of course, they're growing in, in the emerging economies as well. So, um, yeah, we could do with starting to set a precedent as to what sustainable pet ownership looks like. Um, yeah. In the UK alone in, in 2019, um, we found that, that well, not, not we, sorry, but it was the PDSA, this piece of research that found there were about 10 million dogs and about 11 million cats um, in the UK with about half of households owning owning a pet. Um, and, you know, that's huge. That's a, that's a lot of animals and they all carry their own ecological footprint. So I think, yeah, vets have got a really interesting role here in terms of advocating for um, responsible and sustainable pet care and pet ownership in terms of discouraging keeping numerous excessive numbers of pets um, ideally encouraging the rescuing of animals as opposed to um, supporting breeding, puppy breeding, yeah. um, advocating early neutering to prevent unwanted unwanted babies um, and making sure the that puppy farms um, that sort of intensively produce um, certain breeds that are desirable at the time um, are obviously under scrutiny and, um, and are potentially closed down if they're not 
they're not following the rules. So um, those things are really important. I think a lot of vets will be fully behind those um, those aspects. Um, there's then a whole you know whole load of um, sort of debate around how we should feed our pets. So yeah. again, um, and this, you'll be an expert in this topic, Sean, but um, we we obviously at the moment are, are ideally feeding um, our pets primarily the, um, the the byproducts of the meat industry, and that is a, a good place to, to be in. Um, and I think that that is as good as it can get in terms of um, in terms of those um, obligate carnivores. So 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 dogs and cats, particularly cats that that need that need a meat based diet. Um, should be getting should be getting it otherwise they will suffer from health um, health problems and so um, again feeding waste and byproducts is a really good way forward um, there's also yeah. an emergence and by I just say on. that waste yeah. and byproducts is not a dirty word it seems to be used as a kind of dirty word by certain pet food trends or, or marketing claims that yeah. because it's byproducts it's somehow you know lower quality but actually it's just the parts of the animal that we don't tend to eat isn't it exactly exactly that yeah. we don't particularly desire in in our particular culture and um and so that's yeah it, it's absolutely not it's a really good use of waste streams um and so yeah and then beyond that there's obviously an emergence of insect-based pet brands um there's 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 a few out there already and they hold potential you know potential because the black soldier fly larvae that they tend to depend on um feast on abattoir waste that is, is really not not human edible or pet edible so that's quite a good use of um of waste and then those insects potentially can be can go into pet food or, or human food or uh, can go into aquaculture or other, other types of food production um yeah so it's really exciting that area yeah yeah really interesting area um and so yeah i think there's there's, there's a number of things that, that pet owners pet owners can do um and there's a lot of a lot of questions on the ethical side not just the environment side around what vets can advocate for in terms of um ethical and sustainable pet ownership and one of those would of course be the breeds that um that that are compromised in terms of their physical um their, their physical form so thinking particularly about brachycephalic breeds which are those that have squashed noses um and there's, there's lots of campaigns from the veterinary sector um about trying to reduce those breeds because they do result in health um health problems for those animals yeah. and, and potentially compromise their ability to lead a lead a good life which is of course what we want for, for all of our pets yeah absolutely and um talking about kind of ingredients and and meat again you know we are seeing this trend in pet food world where a lot of brands cropping up you know promoting raw food or like you know 80 percent meat uh, diets or you know using human grade even though all pet food is you comes from human grade animals and um, using human grade and kind of like well, only delicious select cuts of chicken or yeah. beef and things and I would say similar to you know no one needs a triple quarter pounder also that you know dogs don't need fillet steak yeah. dogs are dog domestic dogs evolve from a wolf ancestor because they came into our settlements and started scavenging our plant and animal leftover food and excrement when uh, we became agriculturalists. So grains and cereals and things like that are a natural part of a domestic dog's diet. But we're seeing this shift back to like, your dog is a wolf. They need, you know, just their total carnivore. Um, they just need meat and lots of it. And that's actually a very, very wasteful way to feed your dog on excess protein, far in, far in um, excess of what it actually needs, isn't it? Totally agree, yeah. And that it, it goes in line with a sort of, um, the anthropomorphism that we're seeing in terms of developing these breeds as well. We're trying to get animals yeah. to be and look um, and eat more and more like us, and and it, it really isn't the way forward. As we say, they are they are dogs that will eat a range of <laughs> a range of things. How all kinds of crap. <laughs> exactly that you'd rather they didn't. But uh, but yeah, absolutely. So. I'd fully agree, and I'm I'm a real advocate, and I'm not in practice anymore, but I'm a real advocate of the the, the dry kibble, the the complete food that eat, that lasts for a hell of a long time and and is complete. So you know somebody's done all the hard work for you and put together that formula. So um, there is a lot to be said for that, and hopefully brings in as many waste streams as, as possible. And of course, yeah, I talk about that around. as well. And you can add in yeah. some fresh ingredients from time to time. You know, as yeah. well, it's not all or it seems to be this all or nothing thing of like kibble is bad and raw is good and all this but that's right yeah. and it's uh and you've of course got we've got of course got an obesity crisis in our pets as well as as well as yeah. our people. so i think um making sure that we're feeling feeling balanced diet you know uh, 
there's an argument there that the excess calories that we're feeding ourselves and our pets is that's all food waste that is all that's also waste, waste yeah 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 for sure what about you touched on it um briefly earlier laura about um veterinary medicines and i think you were probably referring to um products that we use in food production animals and how they impact on the environment as well so maybe you'd say a little bit about that but also then maybe some of the medications that we are the status quo in small animal practice for our pets that we tend to use we're now looking at those as an industry with a little more scrutiny as well aren't we that's right yeah so so yeah this is a, this is a big topic and a, a real interest to vet sustained community it seems to come up um regularly which is which is really good so um, generally, um, as, as many pet owners will know, there's a there's a, a general acceptance that we 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 apply or give to our pets um, a very regular flea and or worm treatment um, to reduce those diseases, which can be pretty nasty in, in in animals if they get out of hand. So there's a very strong rationale for for making sure we keep on top of that through prevention, better than cure, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and also um, by seeing the pets regularly, potentially as a, you know, um, and this is it's nothing to do with vaccination, this, this argument at all, but seeing them regularly for, for, for prescribing those treatments also allows you to look at the animal and make sure they're happy and healthy and all the rest. Um, so there's, there's some strong rationale for, for a real preventative based approach that I, I wouldn't argue with at all. Um, but there is an emerging concern that some, some of the products that we're applying to our pets, um, particularly the neonicotinoids and fipronil, which um, are present in, in a number of different um, flea treatments, um, are having an environmental impact and are very persistent in our environment. So as insecticides, of course, they, they all kill fleas and other creepy crawlers on our pets but they of course will then go into the environment and and you know fairly um uh w- without much um targeting they will they will kill a lot of other in- insects as well if, if given a chance yeah um the, there's obviously um the you know one under the spectrum where you're saying well it's only a very small pipette how can that possibly um kill off a load of honeybees um and other insects and cause and cause um, insect collapse and I think a lot of work has to be done on on how much and and how it can get into our waterways and cause um, and, and, and you know, potentially cause insect um, population decline but there is a, quite a lot of evidence emerging for example one study that showed um, imidacloprid which is one of the neonicotinoids it found yeah. it was all exceeding um, the, the, the toxic levels in our urban rivers um, and that particular study implicated flea products um, so flea spot-ons and, and collars that we use in our pets as the most likely cause of those levels of imidacloprid which is, is really concerning and something that obviously um, vets need to um, listen to and start considering. Um, yeah. I think it's a big opportunity here for vets is just to ensure a, a very very robust approach to um, diagnostics in, in, in the clinic and um, before treatment but then also really um, robust advice to owners as to what the animal can do following treatment for example. I was going to say like that drug you mentioned about cloprid is very harmful to aquatic life isn't it so it may be kind of changing the advice on you know for a week after treatment make sure your dog doesn't enter any kind of natural water bodies um, something like that yeah. Exactly, exactly. And also advice around washing bedding. So again, one one concern is not just um, your dog jumping in the river straight after being treated, um, which many owners wouldn't do anyway, but um, but really it would be around, yeah, all of the household residues. So around sort of the bedding um, and, and things like that, that can then get into your washing machine and get into water courses. And, and that is believed to be a potential source of environmental contamination as well. Um, so something that also needs to be added to a to a, a label potentially or some advice um, for clients um, before they leave leave the waiting room, which would be quite unusual. Um, I must say at the moment the the um, environmental regulations around the release of some of these products. So when when a, when new a new drug is released into the market, it has to have a marketing authorization um, yeah. attached to it. And, and actually at the moment for non-food animals, that regulation is it's there, but it does not a great degree of due diligence that's necessary before that animal, before that treatment, should I say, is um, is released into general market, based on the fact that it's go, only going to be used um, quite carefully in individual pets. Um, but as some recent articles have pointed out, if you're treating a pet every month um, throughout the year, and, and we've got, again, 10 million dogs in the UK, yeah. that amounts to quite a substantial amount that now needs further scrutiny. 
Absolutely. And then to the livestock medicines issue, you know, we've seen kind of very high impact cases like with um, diclofenac in poisoning vultures, you know, used as an anti-inflammatory drug in, in cattle in India in particular and um, causing massive crashes in, in vultures and things. But closer to home, I was reading the other day um, a really useful guide about um parasite treatments in cattle and which ones are absolutely toxic and devastating to things like dung beetles because they come out in the dung versus which ones you can choose that actually don't um don't affect dung beetles so much so everything that we put into you know our pets or our livestock potentially has an environmental impact doesn't it Absolutely, yeah, you're right. So the avermectins are the big one in, yeah. in livestock that are often referred to that can that can have a toxic effect on our dung beetles, which are absolutely essential for for again bringing that dung into the soil and 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 making it do its work in terms of soil fertility and organic matter yeah. and, and helping the next crop or or the next um yeah the the, the next flush next sward of, of grass. So it's really and feeding important. feeding things like bats and birds and all sorts yeah, of things as well, exactly. you know. Yeah, exactly. So really important. I think, that, again, there's an emerging um, awareness amongst livestock vets of that and, and a number of, of, of vets within Vet Sustain that are really driving the agenda around some of those issues. But yeah, Dicofenac is a really interesting and devastating problem, obviously, in South Asia primarily. But yeah, like you say, closer to home, um, we've got Dicofenacin, we've got Bacarprofen, we've got Phenarbutazone, we've got Ketoprofen. All those drugs actually are toxic as well to vultures and I was reading the other day that that yeah there's been several um eurasian um griffin vultures that have, have been found with um with visceral gout associated with um with non-steroidal drugs oh, really? yeah absolutely so it's 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 happening in 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 europe as well as over in south asia and um and of course we had this wonderful bearded dragon um, not bearded dragon uh, <laughs> bearded vulture over the peak district very near to us recently yeah. and um vultures are, are closer to home now and so we just need to be aware of that of course it's it's not going to be quite as um potentially quite as concerning in the uk but in certain parts of of um of europe, europe Spain, yeah. for example um it's 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 super super important that livestock vets um, are really aware of this and and again that we're advising our animal owners appropriately so that we're not able we're not allowing scavenging behaviors for example um, yeah. and associated ecological um, consequences yeah fascinating how it's all just so interlinked when you start to look at it closely isn't it I know it really yeah. is yeah well look laura i think we could chat all night um <laughs> and uh we should definitely arrange another time to talk um myself you and heidi if that's all right about agriwild because i'd love be to get happy. your get your thoughts on it um but where can people find out more if they're interested in the work that vet sustain is doing yeah so it's it's vetsustain.org you can have a look at our website it's primarily um Sort of pointing towards the veterinary professionals so that would be veterinary surgeons vet nurses and members of the vet led team so any anybody that works with the veterinary profession we are um we're sort of really wanting to work with you and um and and and, and i suppose um empower you in your roles to do the yeah. best you can for sustainability um but for members of the public that are generally interested in what vets are up to around some of these topics then yeah please do visit our website and and let me know if you've got any ideas or comments that would be that would be fantastic Absolutely. And you've got a great newsletter. I am giving a big plug to a subscribe to the newsletter. It's brilliant. <laughs> Thank you so much. Cool. Reading. All right. Well, Laura, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for coming on. No, thanks to you, Sean. Thanks so much. Keep up the good work too. No worries. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Well, if you enjoyed uh, that episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast, do hit subscribe, a like, and leave us a review if you like. That would help too. Um, if you would like to uh, explore sponsorship, sponsor an episode, or you would just like to give a one-off donation to support the costs of the podcast, you can also do that on Acast Supporter or on Patreon, um, or just get in touch with me. So thanks again for listening, and it's over and out for another episode. Mm-hmm.